Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor-in-chief of War Room. I'm here today with Mike Nyberg, who's the chair of war studies at the Army War College and one of the world's foremost experts on the First World War. And uh, just as we thought we were getting sort of to the tail end of First World War commemorations, we have appearing on the scene a maybe global flu pandemic, uh, which is reminiscent of about 100 years ago, a global flu pandemic that swept the world after or in the in the closing years of the First World War. Uh, so maybe you haven't worked yourself out of a job no, the first, just just yet. First World War is not going to go away. Oh, it's it's maybe not even, It'll never not go even away. over. Uh, when people ask me what the lesson of the First World War is, I tell them the only one that all historians agree on is get a flu shot. So it's it's good all to right. be talking about this. So there's bottom line up front, get the, get the flu shot. Get a flu shot. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. I exactly. Think that's, the, uh, <laughs> that's the lesson. So let's, let's backtrack there uh, and talk about the flu that swept... Uh, really over over the entire globe in 1918, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so can you give us a really brief like history of the what we call the Spanish flu at the close of World War One? So there's a lot that we still don't know about it, uh, but we are 90% sure. I think 90% of historians agree uh, it probably began in rural Kansas. It, it then moved through the people and animals that concentrated first at Fort Riley and the other military bases in the American Midwest and then moved uh, around the world. It was known as Spanish flu because Spain was a neutral country in World War I, so its censorship was not as tight as those of the belligerents, and the Spanish king himself got it. So it quickly became associated with Spain. Uh, There were people who thought maybe it had begun in India. Uh, What we do know is that all of the movement of people and animals made this virus transmit much faster around the world than it would have otherwise, Mm -hmm. and you can directly uh, associate it with the effects of the war. And so World War One, you have obviously people moving all over from the United States to Europe between European countries, really, and and all over all over the world because we know India, there China. were soldiers mm-hmm. from from all over in fronts, literally in the across the globe. And so, what might have been contained as an epidemic in one spot because of the the war is now a global pandemic. What are this? What are the effects that we saw uh, worldwide? There are really two, at least, that connect to the war. Uh, One, of course, is the movement of peoples and animals, as you said, makes this go much faster. The second is that public health, uh, as a general rule, is either degraded in some countries because government effort is going to other things, or, as some American doctors found out, the the, uh, attention of army doctors is to get men back into the field as fast as possible, much more than it is contagion. So, as you noted, this thing spreads incredibly quickly. It hits India unbelievably hard. Uh, And it has some direct impacts on the war itself that we can talk about. Um, But it moves all over the world. Estimates of how many people it killed, no one really knows. It's in the tens of millions, to be sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we don't know because not every country recorded death by flu in quite the same way. So the records are not quite the way that we historians would like to see them. And we historians would like to see records. If you're making historical records, please make spreadsheets with like clear categories. 
and make sure your and handwriting is clear too. And again, yeah. it's, it's, it's understandable, <laughs> but uh, you can understand that record keeping was not their first mm-hmm. priority. And so we've got, like you said, military doctors who are trying to get people back into the fight. You have degraded sort of infrastructure, degraded health systems. Did they, at the time, did they know what was happening? Some doctors did. There had been an influenza epidemic in 1915, though not nearly as bad as the one that hit in 1918 and 1919. So there were doctors who were perfectly aware that bringing this many people and animals together into a confined space with really awful sanitation and bad public health Mm -hmm. was a recipe for disaster. Uh, The two doctors that are most associated with this, Dr. Rufus Cole at the Rockefeller Institute and William Henry Welsh, uh, for whom the Johns Hopkins Medical Library is named, they were the two that sort of figured this out very, very quickly. They were working in institutions that were well-resourced. But what they found out is that the government bureaucracies, especially the military bureaucracies, were just not well-suited to deal with this. So they they knew something on this magnitude could happen. They also knew that if it happened, the structures that were in place were not well-suited to contain it. But they're sort of behind the curve in their ability to respond or react? Right. They're just two people. So they're, okay. they're going, and their teams, I suppose, of researchers. But they go to places like Camp Devers, in, in Boston. They went to Philadelphia, which was particularly badly hit. Uh, and they found local governments just just overwhelmed, just having no mm-hmm. idea how to handle this, no idea how to get basic information out to people, no idea how to do the kind of basic public health things that we would hope that governments would be doing, say, today. Right. Uh, and of course, no ability whatsoever to restrict movement and travel because you're in the middle of a, of a war. You have to have that movement. And that happens uh, sort of stateside as well. So it's a problem on the war fighting fronts, but also at home. But the war affects hometown populations Absolutely. as well, right? Because you're moving soldiers from all over the country into okay. concentration centers. Philadelphia is a concentration center for ships going overseas. Uh, New York City, Boston, all the seaport cities are... Right, are that's how they're going to ship Exactly. Out. And horses and whatever else they're shipping mm-hmm. out. So... Uh, it's a real problem. Philadelphia in particular, as I said, just, just didn't, didn't get in front of this fast enough. Uh, so Philadelphia is particularly hard hit. Do you, do you think there was anything they could have done short of stopping sending people overseas? Like, do you just have to quarantine and stop movement in order to stop a global pandemic? Eventually, that's what they did. They did They did halt some movement of soldiers overseas, even though uh, you can imagine what the army commanders in France were, were, were saying about that. But I even, imagine the words were not polite. They were probably not. But even General Pershing realized it's, a, it's just a bad idea. You have got to make sure that this is contained. You can't have tens or hundreds of thousands of men coming over and infecting the entire mm-hmm. army. So... Um, Short of quarantining everybody, it's not clear, you know, then or now exactly what to do. And and just as we're dealing with today, there's just an awful lot of uncertainty. What what is this? How fast is it spreading? How long is it in the body before it, it, it mm-hmm. before it shows? Um, it, it's extraordinarily difficult to get in front of something like this. Right. When we talk about the sort of epidemiology of the of the flu, do we have what do we know about its virality? About its mortality rate? Was it just a particularly nasty form of, well, the, of the flu? We're historians, so I don't want to get into the uh, science. Yeah. We uh, should well, both what, make a disclaimer, <laughs> we, neither of us are that kind of doctor. Absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, what we do know is that this particular strand of flu had two characteristics that were different from the ones that had come before. This one hit young men particularly hard, which in in mm-hmm. the context of war is a particularly difficult thing. Most influenza epidemics hit people with damaged immune systems, hit the elderly, hit young people. This one actually hit young men very, very hard. And the second thing we know is that this influenza came in two waves. 
And the second wave was was the higher mortality rate of the two, though the lower exposure rate. So what they think is uh, men that were exposed to the first wave, soldiers that were exposed to the first wave, were relatively immune to the second. Uh, but that that idea of the flu being able to hit people who are perfectly healthy, healthy enough to be soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, that was something that I think hit a lot of people by surprise as well. And certainly the context of, of war is going to amplify when you have young, healthy men all in concentrated populations. Absolutely. In, in areas where, more noticeable. where health and hygiene is probably not exactly where you would want it to be. Uh, and it combines in particular in the German army because the German army's level of food is lower. Food and medicines are lower. Mm-hmm. And fresh vitamin C, and orange juice, things like that because of the British blockade. So the protective so, factors that, that might protect people or enable people to survive a nasty belt with a, with a nasty bug are already lowered. Right. In, in those in those war fighting right. contemporaries in the German army although they had a reason to, to say this of course but they they blamed the lack of vitamin C the lack of good nutrition and said that this was hitting the German army much harder than it was hitting hmm. the other armies and there seems to be some evidence for that the Germans were aware uh, the, the evidence is again not quite what we would like but the evidence is there that the Germans were reluctant to bring soldiers from the Eastern Front where they had just concluded a peace deal with the Russians they were reluctant to bring flu-ridden soldiers back through Germany to the Western Front for fear of what the influenza would do to German society. Mm-hmm. And the British blockade continued even after the the uh, armistice was signed, all the way through to June of 1919, when the Versailles Treaty was signed. So one of the real causes of anger among Germans of all political stripes after World War I is that the British wouldn't let food and medicine in, even when they knew this epidemic was hitting German civilians after the shooting had stopped. Hmm, that's really interesting. And I think it gets to the, the really complex politics of war and humanitarian mm-hmm. concern and that you can, you can see humanitarian disaster unfolding, <laughs> unfolding before your, right eyes, before and, your and eyes and still um, have strong political reasons for not responding or not intervening. Right. And there um, were people like Herbert Hoover who, who were yelling and screaming about this that it just doesn't make any sense. The war mm-hmm. is over. Uh, there's no point punishing German civilians. Right. There's no point letting a pandemic begin in Germany when you know you can't control it once it once it starts. So the politics and the war and the disease all did combine in ways that that hit Germany particularly sure. hard. When what happened once the once the war was over? How does the pandemic? eventually die out. Well, I should note one other thing that happens during the war, if I might, which is that the U.S. Army uh, found at the Battle of Muzargan, which was the largest battle the Army had ever fought to this point, this is in September uh, 1918 to the end of the war, that thousands of American soldiers, they called them stragglers, just started walking to the back. They would take a couple of days in the rear area, then they would return to their units. And the Army had no idea how to handle this. And what they finally figured out was that these were either men who had battle fatigue or probably had influenza and just literally needed three or four days somewhere where there was nobody around them to sleep to get the effects out of Hmm. their system. Then they would return right back to the Army. So they weren't deserting. They're not sort of abandoning their their post but technically they were they deserting are, but they came back but they came back and so the army's answer to it was to just deal with it just let it happen mm-hmm. um so we think now that this is probably connected to influenza as well so again you know microbes and germs have a have a long history in history that they, they've had dramatic impacts throughout time and this is another example of that where we see that i think it's a thing that Historians are more and more attuned to mm-hmm. as we think about the relationship between the environment and right, non-human, non-material factors right. sort of in war that war affects landscapes, it affects environments and has really long-term consequences and microbes don't leave 
documents. That's exactly right. But they, which historians love, um, but they certainly leave evidence, and we can we can sort of find them in interesting places. Right. So as the as the war ends in 1918, late 1918, what happens to the to the pandemic? How does it eventually? sort of run its, does it just run its course? It does run its course. There is this second wave uh, that seems to coincide with the demobilization. So people are going back to Africa, they're going back to India, they're going back to China, they're going back. There were were tens of thousands of Chinese laborers working in Mm -hmm. France, a very complicated political history behind that. Uh, And then, of course, there's American soldiers who are coming back to the United States. Uh, You can't really quarantine them in in the way that maybe would have made the most sense medically. Uh, So the disease has another uh, vector by which it spreads. Um, And then it seems to have run its course. Almost just as quickly as it shows up, it kind of goes away Mm -hmm. uh, and leaves behind it um, both a medical history that needs to be examined and a kind of social history and political history. Sure. So if we think very broadly, and we've, we've talked about some of this already, but we think broadly about the relationship between war, globalization, the movement of people around the world, and disease and the environment, what, what are the lasting uh, sort of themes or ideas that we ought to maybe pull from this? One is certainly that when governments are distracted by something else, in this case fighting a world war, their eyes are just not on the thing that maybe it should be on. So this is a pandemic. Like I said, there were warnings in 1915. There had been influenza epidemics that had hit worldwide in the late 19th century, uh, but there just wasn't the kind of effort, even though doctors like Cole and Welsh were, were saying, this is a possibility. This is something you need to be thinking about. There just isn't the energy, the resources, the time, uh, the talent, really, to to be focused on it. Army medicine is worried about something else. Mm-hmm. That's one, I think, lesson that clearly comes out of this. And the other, of course, is that in wartime, Everything is degraded. Your public health is degraded. Nutrition is degraded. Clean water is degraded for a lot of these men who are at the front lines. The basic things that you need just aren't available. And um, that's a, that's an important lesson, I think, going forward as well, even into our own day as we're in just-in-time delivery and very tight windows for things. Right, that and, you, can, you can have significant consequences from sort of small, small movements. And certainly when we look outside of the United States, if we look at conflict ridden places and other parts of the world where they really are at at war and entire societies mm-hmm. are at war. The public health implications that come with that um, are much more significant than in a, in a place like the United States, which while we've had military troops deployed and fighting overseas for a long time, the society writ large has not is not suffering the sort of right. consequences of that. Right. When the institutions break down, when the infrastructure breaks down, transportation infrastructure breaks down, all of that happens. It, it's a it's a bad recipe. Sure. You look at places like Syria, Yemen, mm-hmm. all over. All over. <laughs> things are things are not people. People are not are not well, and they don't have the systems to deal with it. Um, I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning about why we call it the Spanish flu, and that in Spain, a neutral country, they had a more open press. There was more information, and so even though it didn't start there, that's the the name that sort of got attached to it. What what was going on in other places to restrict information? Well, nobody nobody among the belligerent countries wants to reveal any information about where the flu is hitting or how bad it's hitting for, for military reasons. So this is happening in 1918, 1919, 1918 especially when the, the last major campaigns of the war are being fought. So if you think about the Western Front, um, Germany is looking for specific places on that front to target French and British operations. They're, they're trying to, to push towards certain railway junctions. If you let it be known that there was a, a particularly bad bout of influenza in one area of the Western Front, 
that's a really serious military breach mm-hmm. of, of of security. So there's a there's a major clampdown on on information coming out of the fronts. There's also a major clampdown coming out of the home fronts as well because they don't want people's morale to be affected. So in the belligerent countries, there's very tight control over information about what's going on with the flu, mm-hmm. which probably made the situation much worse than it might otherwise have been. Because you imagine one of the things that you need in a, in a pandemic is information right. about how it spreads, how to prevent it, um, how to treat it, all of that. And if, if the media sort of, if, if there's a blackout on information, then you can't get that. So that's a, that's a real problematic consideration, right, for governments about what information they, they put out and what they don't. Does it have a, any long-term effect on in your mind about the relationship between media governments and militaries? You know, there were two articles recently in The Atlantic that touched on this. One argued that, you know, we're so much better advanced now. We understand the epidemiology. We understand what viruses do. We understand how to kill them. We understand how to contain them. The other article was kind of arguing, well, all that is true, but if that information is not getting out to the general public and it's not getting out to everybody, then there's really no point in the knowledge being in the heads of a small number mm-hmm. of scientists. So it is a kind of, um, um, I guess, good news, bad news situation. We do understand the way that viruses move much better today. Right. Um, but this is the information age. This is the age of anybody who can say anything that they want to do on social media. And so I don't know about you, but I've been seeing social media people were saying that eat silver. I've seen um, there was something about some chemical you're supposed to rub on your feet. Um, And you see this from 100 years ago where doctors were actually advising people to smoke cigarettes on Mm -hmm. the hope that the tobacco smoke might kill the virus. So if you don't really have effective things in place, it probably won't work. Uh, Though if 100 years ago you really have no medicine and you have nothing else and you just want people to feel like they're being involved. Right. Is it Voltaire who said the job of the doctor is to amuse the patient while the body heals itself? So if, if the body does just need time, then maybe mm-hmm. telling people, you know, drink tea, wear a mask, and don't spit in the sidewalks is, is good is enough. good enough, yeah. And don't spitting in sidewalks seems like, a again, like pretty solid public health advice. Yeah, as does wash with soap, yet it seems that we have to be reminded of that. Yeah. So it's, it is getting basic information. And you can imagine too, anytime informa- in a pandemic, right? Panic is also another thing you don't. You do not want, want that, right? Or right. you get, say, hand sanitizer being hundreds of dollars, right, on Amazon and store shelves being cleared out when, in fact, probably what you need is soap. It is that balance between you want normal life to be able to continue as much as possible, especially in wartime, because cities like Philadelphia are producing ammunition they're producing mm-hmm. you know food they're they're transshipping things you want that balance but in philadelphia in particular they did not ban public gatherings so they were continuing to have parades they were continuing to have large meetings of people uh, by contrast and I, I just know this because one day i was goofing around on on in their archives when i was there the university of michigan banned large group gatherings. So if you look at even something as basic as football attendance, you see this hmm. tremendous drop in 1918 because the university had decided not to... That not the, to the way to respond to this is to not have... Right, or at least to greatly reduce. I think right. students were still allowed to go to the games or something. And, okay. you know, and so these are, you know, these are 50-50 decisions. Do you, do you stop people from living daily life with the economic and social and political impacts that that's going to have? Or do you kind of over-respond in the hope that you can contain it? Mm-hmm. And the same, it's the same debate we're having today. Yeah, and and people, and we see right now, people are making all sorts of different decisions, right? right? Some major academic and professional organizations have canceled 
their conferences with you know just a day or two notice right which has massive economic implications mm-hmm. for the host cities for the people who work Look at the airlines in mm-hmm. service industries airlines hotels um, everything so these are these are really impactful mm-hmm. decisions um so if if you're doing this in time of war, you have to multiply the risk factor even more. Even right? more. What, right. what if what if we're not getting ammunition to the men who need it? What if we're not moving fifteen thousand soldiers from right. from Boston to the Western Front? What if our factory workers aren't well enough? Correct. To continue work, what if we have to shut that down? Then what what do we do? So right. you can imagine these are not easy decisions. I think it's it's often too easy to look back a hundred years ago and say, well, they should have known this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, they're dealing with the same kinds of stresses that we're dealing with. I think they're actually dealing with worse stresses because they knew less a hundred years ago than we know now. And they're dealing in, a, in an environment of total war, which is just adding to the stress and adding to the pressure of what decision makers have to be able and to like do. And like you said, the attention that governments, that officials, that policymakers have to have to have elsewhere. It's, all, it's elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So let's imagine... Um, that a group of policymakers invited some historians to the table. <laughs> we can we can dream, right? Um, and they said, "What you know? Are there lessons from 1918, 1919, and the influenza epidemics that we are there? Questions we might ought to ask, or are there things that we ought to be thinking about right now uh, while we're dealing with this right novel coronavirus 19?" I'm thinking about a, a potential global pandemic. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's doing this, but I I would say the one thing to do is to look at the last few of these that we've had, H1N1, SARS, Ebola, now this one, and a few others of recent history. What, what are the common patterns? What, what has been true pretty well through this? I think the U.S. Army takes justifiable pride in a in a positive response to Ebola and handling that crisis reasonably well. Uh, it would be a, a very good exercise for some social scientist or historian or some group of them to start to look at what were the common responses. Mm-hmm. D- did societies react fast enough? Did they react in appropriate ways? And in the American case, where we have clear divisions between the local, federal, and kind of international systems, how did the relationship between those three work? So in the First World War, it didn't work very well. So that the national government was not giving local authorities what they needed. Local governments, therefore, were making decisions based on incomplete resources and incomplete information. If that's still true, why? Uh, and how do we fix it? So I think there's a way in which you could take a classic kind of historian's approach to this, which would be to look both at change over time mm-hmm. and look for general patterns in a problem and see what begins to emerge. Right. Continuities and discontinuities. Exactly. Change and evolution. And I think your point about it's basically a levels of analysis point too, mm-hmm. which is you have to look at it at local, national, and international scales in order to make right. sense of of what's happening. And our system's just not built to do that. Our system is definitely built for for rigid distinctions between national, international, and local mm-hmm. events. We have different institutions, different governance structures, different everything. Right. And pandemics are, by their definition, they are transnational. So. It's difficult because the system's really not built to work and think that way. So what is the World Health Organization really best suited to do? What is the U.S. federal government and the CDC best suited to do? And what things need to be done at, at local levels? At, you know, state departments of health and, and local county, you know, county Even at the hospital like public that. health level. Right. Uh, so I think that would be an interesting study for somebody to do. I know we kind of did this. Some historians did on terrorism and looking at consistent patterns. This mm-hmm. might be another way to think about about how to use the skills historians have 
to maybe give some insight because we know for sure this is not going to be the last pandemic that we're going to face. Almost certainly not. It also strikes me that historians might be well suited to looking at information flows Mm-hmm. given our love of documents mm-hmm. and records and our ability to sort of sort through massive amounts of text, uh, right, newspaper, media reports, yeah. things like that, to think about how communication happens. In a censored in system pandemic. like this one in World War One, it's doubly hard to do in mm-hmm. World War One because, again, they're not really talking about it. And as you noted, it's not till later in the game that soldiers realize what it is that they're facing. Right. So it's interesting. You do have soldiers who are saying, look, I think this is God punishing us for four years of doing this. Like, we, hmm. we started this war. We don't know how to end it. Even if we end it, it's not really going to end it. You know, th- maybe this is God doing this to us. Other people are blaming their enemies and saying, well, maybe they snuck this in, or maybe they are firing in with artillery shells. And so there is a period of time where where you can almost trace it. It's, it's just a fear because you don't know anything. And then once you do know what you're facing, there's a fear because you know that if you get this thing, there's an excellent chance yeah, it could you don't kill you. know. There's nothing to do about it, or there's a sense of and it's not fatalism. Right? For soldiers in World War One, it's not a heroic death to die of the flu. It, it's not. No. It's not really what I think. For many of the soldiers' memoirs that I've read, they're okay giving their life for this cause. That's what they signed up for. But giving it up on a navy ship coming from. Philadelphia with the... Right, puking your guts out. Yeah, the the Navy loses, the U.S. Navy loses more men to flu than it does to Mm -hmm. enemy action. What does that mean? How, how do you how do you handle that? Right. How do you how do you deal with that reality? Well, and that's and the idea that disease is the predominant killer in for most of human history and most of right. war related deaths are disease and until very recently, right? Until very very recently, right? And so that's, that's something that, that William Henry Welsh was was working off of. So he certainly had that historical understanding. Uh, you know, this is where the, the the Red Cross comes from. This is mm-hmm. where you know a lot of modern medicine comes from is yeah. this notion that when you bring lots of people and animals together, a lot of microbes start getting exchanged and bad things happen. Well, I think we, we see that in other parts of military history as well with the history of medicine and what wartime does for medical knowledge, yeah. right? How Even now our treatment of traumatic injury, of brain injuries, all sorts of things, there's lots of evidence is coming out of war zones and also coming out of urban hospitals right and the national yeah. football league yeah in the in the interesting ways that uh, things things work together yeah all right so i think if we think about what we should do we'll go back to our initial advice at the beginning of the podcast lessons learned from world war one get a flu shot wash your hands and get a flu shot i mean what what the other thing that of course that comes out of this is the first world war is a period of tremendous globalization, the period right before it, the period mm-hmm. during it, and the period right after it. So it is a period, in some ways, we are just getting back to those levels right. of globalization that we had 100 like years truly ago. Truly the movement of people and goods and animals and all sorts of things literally around the globe. It can happen almost with no paperwork, yeah. no government oversight. It is really astonishing, the level of globalization. And when that happens, you're you're going to have to deal with this in some way. And it is a reminder, of course, that a global problem requires requires a global solution. But again, our system is built to handle these things at the low, the lowest, that is the smallest level that we mm-hmm. can. And that's a problem I think going forward, we're going to have to think about, either think about how to adjust it or how to work within its limitations. Within the, within the system that we have set up. Great. So Mike, thanks so much for joining me on A Better Peace today. It's been a delightful conversation. Uh, our 25 minutes went much faster <laughs> than I ever anticipate they're going to. Uh, and so with one last reminder to wash your hands, 
get your flu shot and don't touch your face. Wash your hands, uh, everybody. Wash your hands. <laughs> 20 seconds. We've got lots of advice about what takes 20 <laughs> seconds, right? Reciting uh, the monologue from Macbeth. Uh, oh, I heard that of, one. Yeah, right. Out damn spot. All Sing of that. happy birthday twice. I Sing happy birthday twice. There's plenty mm. of uh, pop songs and rock songs with 20 second choruses. Yeah. Uh, so pick your favorite and uh, stay healthy, everyone. We're signing off for a better piece. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.